This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's three o'clock somewhere. Time for a My Mochi ice cream snack. My Mochi ice cream is cool, creamy scoops of premium ice cream wrapped in sweet, pillowy dough. And get this. All of My Mochi's fabulous flavors like strawberry, mango, double chocolate, and cookies and cream are only around 80 calories per piece. Talk about a guilt-free, indulgent experience. Each box of My Mochi ice cream has six perfectly portioned, gluten-free mochis that are great for grab-and-go. So feel good while curbing your afternoon cravings or the midnight munchies. Yeah, you know who you are with the joyfully chill sensation of My Mochi ice cream. Find My Mochi ice cream at Target or visit MyMochi.com to locate a grocery store near you. This is America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. We are now less than a month of the election, although with swing states having to count mail-in ballots, we may be far longer than that from actual results, not just for the White House, but control of the Senate. For the president, the past week has had major events that may have changed his campaign in the time that he has left to go. To look at that and everything else in the nation's capital, we again bring in CBS News chief White House correspondent and host of the podcast, The Debrief and The Takeout, Major Garrett. Major, how are you? Great to be with you, Gil. Let's start with the president. We have to start with the president getting COVID and his reaction since he has left Walter Reed and even while he was there. Tell us about that. It's a complicated story made more complicated by the evasiveness of the president's physicians, intentional evasiveness uh, directed by the president himself. And we should keep this in mind. Uh, Presidential candor about presidential illnesses does not have a well-grounded history in American political life. Most presidents have been deceptive with the country about their actual physical state of being. There are lots of examples. We can go into them if you want, but let's just talk about President Trump. The only day that there were any vital signs reported was the Monday of the day he was being discharged when they were there most optimistic. There were no similar numbers given about his temperature or his blood pressure or his comparative chest congestion ever while he was in the hospital. Clearly, Friday of last week was a bad day for the president, but we don't know how bad. There was evasions on that Saturday after he was admitted on that Friday about whether or not any supplemental oxygen was given. We then found out that it was given twice. Well, that's a not insignificant matter for the commander in chief and the president of the United States. So it's been hard to know just exactly what his experience has been with COVID-19. We do know that he received three treatments, one of them experimental and another of them a steroid that has some side effects. Uh, It amplifies your sense of well-being. And so when the president says, I feel better than I did 20 years ago, that's probably related to dexamethasone, the steroid that is given to people who have at least some manner 
of difficulty breathing or chest congestion. And though the president was said not to really have much anymore, he was still given this intense steroid treatment. So it's hard to know just exactly what the president's condition is. What we do know about the White House Guild is this. Hardly anyone is there. Why? Because so many people who work closely with the president have also tested positive. And that makes the day-to-day functionality of the White House much more problematic. They still haven't figured out from where the president will do the majority of his work, whether it be the residence, some other room in the residence that's far away from where his bedroom is. Just an hour-to-hour movement of information and decision-making in this White House has been made much more difficult by not only the test that's positive for the president and his ongoing treatment, but that of so many others. Yeah, and this is a disease that we should point out does not necessarily end with you getting over it, getting past the fever and all of that, and the antibodies going away. Many people have severe inflammation problems that affect their heart afterwards. We have no idea whether that is the case with the president. Should underline that. But there's so much medically we don't know. The president has, as you said, been put on steroids. It's known to cause rage in people. It's not their fault. It's a side effect. We also have, as you said, information from his doctor that's been incomplete at times in need of correction. We also have the Joint Chiefs of Staff quarantined because the head of the Coast Guard proved positive. So again, forgetting the politics, the liberal, conservative, Democrat, Republican of this, how much of a national security problem might we have here? Well, the functionality of the Pentagon in its own word is ongoing and is not in any way, the Pentagon asserts, challenged by people working remotely. But you just have to think as a practical matter, as we have all figured out to work remotely, those of us who can, there are some challenges involved. It's not optimal. Can we function? Have we learned to function? Yes. Is that the best kind of functioning? And when you're making decisions that might have some bearing on the national security of the United States, would you rather not have those decision makers working as closely and as in as trusted an environment as possible? I think most Americans would say, yes, I would certainly prefer that. I'd sleep better if I knew that the Joint Chiefs of Staff were communicating the way they normally do and functioning the way they normally do. Now, Gil, many in your audience will say, look, Major, calm down. The military can adjust. The military adjusts to all sorts of exigent circumstances, like war. And that's an exigent circumstance unlike any other. And I know that. I grant that. And I respect them for it. Still, this brings up the question of, what is the core competency of this administration when it comes to taking precautions? Can you say this deep into this country's experience with the virus that that core competency is defensible? When so many people at the White House have contracted the virus, the president has, the Joint Chiefs of Staff have been affected by it, and we have videotape of ceremonies and procedures done at the White House where protocols simply are not being followed. Social distancing isn't, mask wearing isn't, and those kinds of things have to contribute to the circumstances of limited functionality our government finds it in, itself in now. You talked about the the history of the president's health over decades. And this has been an ongoing problem. It's not new. President Reagan's family later admitted he was in far more danger than we were told after he was shot. We never had a full accounting of the severity of President Kennedy's health problems when he was alive. Most Americans had no idea FDR even used a wheelchair, much less that he was really near death when he was elected for his fourth term. And they might have been looking at Harry Truman as the actual president. Eisenhower's heart attack in 1955 was downplayed. And Woodrow Wilson suffered a series of strokes. The last 
last of which was so serious he was rarely seen in his last year in the White House. Some historians believe his wife, Edith, was actually president during that time. In this time when a 9-11 can change America instantly, how big a deal is clarity on any president's health? I think clarity is important, and it's been demonstrably more important and considered more vital to the functioning of the United States in the nuclear age. And that, I think, Gil, raises a temperamental issue in this regard, because the temperament of the president is a factor, but it ought not to be the overriding factor. And Sean Conley, his physician, is not only his physician, so he is in one way subservient to his patient, but he is also a Navy commander, clearly in the chain of command taking orders from his commander-in-chief. I'm not saying that totally compromises him, but in his own public utterances, he has said, I want to reflect the upbeat attitude of my patient, the President of the United States, and I'm not going to tell you things about when he contracted it. They still won't tell us that. They won't explain how contact tracing is going on. My sources tell me, Gil, it's almost non-existent. And they won't explain some of the underlying chest issues, whatever they may or may not be with with the President. So there's a lot they're not disclosing, and that comes directly from the temperamental preferences of President Trump. There are, getting back to politics, some things that are also interesting to talk about directly affect the American people. A stimulus bill has apparently been put off by the president until after the election. What is the buzz on that in Washington? Because the economy, of course, has been Trump's main strength against Democrats, and it almost seems like he's needlessly abandoning that right before the election. Well, Gil, this is an important window into what is or isn't happening with the president's reaction, say, for example, to dexamethasone, a steroid that can have some manic side effects. So the president says, I'm cutting off all negotiations. That was news to Republican allies on Capitol Hill. It was news to Democrats who are not allies of this president, but are nevertheless significant negotiating partners because they control the House of Representatives. Then the president said, I'll do something on a standalone basis. Then he said, I'll do another thing. Then I'll do another thing. And then today, we're just recording this on October 7th, there's been a conversation between the president's main emissary to Capitol Hill, Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin, and Speaker of the House Nancy Pelosi. This is within 24 hours of the president declaring and the stock market's losing almost 400 points on the Dow that negotiations were canceled until after the election. So there's something going on here that's not quite aligned. And that doesn't fit within the president's typical negotiating tactics. So you have to ask yourself, what's really happening? Is this a reflection of something that the president is experiencing as a result of his treatment? Or is he feeling just particularly antsy and agitated because the election is getting so close and there's so much political and human pressure on more economic relief? Because, Gil, I don't need to tell you, the layoffs are here in many industries, leading with the airlines. These layoffs are happening American lives are being affected right here and now, and the lack of a stimulus bill is making that set of layoffs all the more dire and all the more politically potent. CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett, and also remember his podcasts, which bring you a lot more information as well, the debrief and the takeout. Major, thank you again. Always a pleasure, Gil. Thank you. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. 
I'm Gil Gross. So let's take a look at where we are with the economy, which would usually be the big issue about now. But the virus story, of course, is totally connected to it. Jill Schlesinger is business analyst for CBS News, whose podcast, Jill on Money, and whose latest book is The Dumb Things Smart People Do With Their Money, are things that you should get connected to. Hi, Jill. How are you? Great. How are you? Good. So usually the economy is the big issue right now as we get so close to the election. But there is a war going on, the war against the virus, and they've become inextricably connected. Yeah, I mean, this is such a strange time because the pandemic is its own thing, and it has caused the greatest, the most severe recession since the Great Depression. But I I do think that um, there's sort of some optimism on the horizon in that, at least in this kind of a recession, we know that there will be an end when essentially we have a vaccine. The problem is that until that time, we have millions of Americans who are suffering and we need to make sure that this doesn't cascade into another leg down, another, another sort of worsening of the economy after the spring and summer seeing a recovery. I guess one of the questions, though, in this extreme uncertainty, because we all kind of talk of when the vaccine gets here, it'll all be better. But a vaccine may be only 50 percent effective. And on top of that, only about half of all Americans who have been polled on this intend to take it when it's available. So that brings up a big question of whether a vaccine ends this or just makes it a little less worse. Well, it definitely makes it a little less worse. I think it probably ends the worst aspects of the recession because the recession is essentially a a recession caused by a complete lockdown of the economy. And there are certainly parts of the um, economy that have done pretty well. But for all intents and purposes, unless you're a white collar worker, uh, you are every day going out into your community worried about your own health, maybe not, probably not spending as much money. And already we have many industries that have been so severely impacted by this that I'm really concerned that that some just may not really be able to survive this. Clearly, we are going to lose, you know, tens of thousands, if not 100,000 restaurants across this country. Small businesses are at risk. Um, certainly large retailers are at risk. We have an airline industry that is crippled, hospitality, hotels, um, and other travel-related services. And when you think about those businesses, they touch so many people. So it's not as if you can just say, well, you know, there'll just be a few less pilots and uh, a few less packing uh, uh, baggage folks. No, it's it's all those different businesses that serve the airline business. So, you know, it, there is a a real danger that without enough financial support that the 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 where we are in this moment is kind of critical that we need to take care of people who again for no reason of their own find themselves either out were out of work sidelined and certainly the big issue for even those people who continue to maintain their employment is they're just not spending as much money because they're not out and about so ideally with the vaccine, we get more people who are going back to work into downtown areas and a little bit looser around spending money. And that should certainly help us recover. It certainly would help. Going back to your question about some industries and whether they will come back, we already know some restaurant chains aren't going to come back, some department stores, and of course, many department store chains were hurting anyway. 
may not come back. But looking at the theme of the show week to week, America changed forever. Even in the states where movie theaters are open, hardly anybody is showing up. And blockbuster movies are now postponed for nobody really knows how long. Regal has announced they're closing their hundreds of movie theaters in the country, at least for now. Just in that sector alone with affordable big screen TVs, people getting used to not spending $14 a piece, so $28 for a couple just to see one movie, but hey, for $28, I can subscribe to a whole bunch of streaming services, see a whole bunch of movies without spending for the refreshments and the babysitters. I've talked to people in the industry who are pretty sure movie theaters will not really be that much of a thing again. You know, it's interesting to consider this. Uh, the the pandemic um, it, it may it may not change us forever. I think that's sort of uh, like uh, somewhat grandiose when it comes to the economy, but it is accelerating a lot of underlying trends that were already in place. So let's think about that. Well, movie theaters, of course, we knew that more and more people were reluctant to go into movie theaters when they had the convenience of watching things in their own homes. We know, frankly, that Online shopping was already growing much faster than shopping trends at brick and mortar locations. Now that's exploding. We knew that certain areas were were kind of ripe for disruption. Maybe that's online education. Maybe that's um, telehealth, telemedicine. So I, I'm not so sure that this is a you know a, a change forever. It I do think that this is accelerating a lot of trends that were already running through the U.S. economy, it's just almost as if we've skipped ahead 10 years and gotten to uh, a place where we might have been in 2030, not in 2020. And it's true. Some of these things we were talking about anyhow, you know, department stores we were talking about anyhow, movie theaters were something that we were talking about anyhow. But yes, there are other things here, such as you mentioned education. The cost of a higher education in this country that has left so many young people in debt for decades has been a problem. And as education, watching lectures, working at your own time from home has caught on, and you're no longer necessarily talking about you know room and board on top of tuition, we may be some see some changes that that actually are for the good, even though we're not getting much of a chance to get used to them. Yeah, I mean, look, so much of this is you know sort of the good and the bad. It's a paradox of being in a capitalist society, and that is that there are often things that happen that we lament in the moment, like oh my gosh, those poor uh, buggy whip makers, they just, they're not going to make it because there's this thing called a car and we're not going to be riding carriages anymore. And then something else happens. And I think that for a long time, I've always thought about like the nostalgia for what was, um, you know, we did a piece on CBS Sunday morning, uh, at the very beginning of the pandemic. And I interviewed a woman who wrote the history of the department store. And, you know, here we are lamenting the end of the department store. And, and yet she said that, you know, really when the department store chain, when department stores opened, which is now more than a hundred years ago, they were seen as the bad guys who are putting your mom and pop stores out of business. So in every, in every cycle, there are unfortunately winners and losers. I think that certainly one of the the upsides of the pandemic is that there's going to be a lot more creativity around how do we work from home more efficiently. I think that for families, this could be a, a pretty much of a deal changer because we now 
have seen that many people can work from home when their bosses forever were saying, oh, no, 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 you can't work from home. And and so I, I think that there could be great strides in online education. I think that this has also caused people to reassess whether or not a you know, 40 or 50 or 60 or $80,000 education is actually worth it? Will there be some certificate programs from, you know, big technology companies? I don't know what's going to happen. I do think that often we have, you know, creativity that comes out of the destruction. One of the things that's a problem for a lot of people right now is we are in the middle of a political campaign and an extremely volatile one at that. Just this past week, the president said there would be no more talks about economic stimulus until after the election. Then two days later, he said the talks were back on. I guess if you're a business or an investor and you're trying to decide what to do about your business or investment right now, your head is spinning. Yes. I mean, the good news for an investor is that you're a long-term investor and you don't have to worry about whether the stimulus gets passed today, tomorrow, or in three weeks. You hope it gets passed just for humanitarian basis. For businesses, I think it's a little bit different. I think that if you're a small business and you're wondering whether there's going to be another PPP, maybe there's something there. I don't know. Uh, I think that for the larger industries, they've tapped the public markets as they needed to. Um, I really do think that this is a crisis that is falling much more on the shoulders of the small business owners as well as employees of larger firms. So I'm not so worried about the big companies. I'm worried that um, that individuals who are impacted, whether they work at a big company or a small company, and they're sidelined, that they are not getting the help they need. I'm also really concerned that we need to extend the moratorium on evictions and on foreclosures. And we need to make sure that student loan debt is still, you know, sort of staying at that 0% interest where it is right now through the end of the year. Maybe we do that all through next year just to help people out. We really got to focus on the people who are negatively impacted by this crisis. And just to reiterate, I know a lot of times we've talked about this, but the most severely impacted people are low wage workers, people of color, we see women who are disproportionately hurt and younger workers. These are the people we need to be thinking about as stimulus efforts continue. Well, as you talk more about individuals, we're going to take a break and then let's come back and talk briefly about what individuals might be doing during a time like this. We're talking with CBS News business analyst Jill Schlesinger. You're listening to America Change Forever from the CBS Audio Network. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Rakuten's Big Give Week is back with 15% cash back. It's a festival of savings at hundreds of stores, including Doc Martens, Ninja Kitchen, and Hotels.com. Prep for summer and save big on beauty, travel, electronics, and more. 
It's one of Rakuten's biggest cashback events, and it's on May 6th through May 13th. Join today for free and get an extra 10% cashback boost. Go to Rakuten.com or download the Rakuten app today. That's R-A-K-U-T-E-N. Shoppers get it. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. Continuing our conversation with Jill Schlesinger, business analyst for CBS News, whose podcast, Jill on Money, gives you a lot more details than we're going to be able to do in this time. But Jill, let's talk about this. This is a time when people are probably trying to figure out a lot of things they can't figure out, the future of the businesses they work for, the sector they work for. What should Americans be doing with our personal finances, not just to get through this, to but to readjust to something that you know, hopefully a vaccine will take care of, but something that may linger in one way or another for a while. What should we be looking at in our personal finances? Well, I think for your personal finances, the only thing to remember is there's nothing new. And everything I'm about to say is is are, are the steps that you would take in any time. It's just that the pandemic has laid bare how important these issues are. Because when you have not actually done the things that I'm about to recount, you feel so out of control. So, you know, I think go back to the basics. So number one, you've got to try to keep a emergency reserve fund. That fund should be six to 12 months of your living expenses. It should never be at risk. It should be in a boring old checking, savings, money market, high yield money market, short-term CD, short-term government bond. That's it. Nothing more than that. Six to 12 months of your living expenses is your emergency reserve fund. Number two, aggressively try to pay down consumer debt like credit card debt or an auto loan, unless you've got a 0% um, outstanding interest rate. And also student loans in general, like they do pile up. So I, I mean, as soon as the interest clock starts ticking, pay those down as well. And then to the best of your ability, you want to try to maximize your retirement accounts. Beyond those big three, I, I, I think the pandemic has also really opened up a dialogue within families around estate planning. Hey, mom, is your will updated? Will you tell me if, God forbid, something were to happen to you, if you got sick, what would you want to happen for you? How long do you want to be kept alive if we don't think there's a chance of you surviving? These conversations have become all the more important. And certainly as families are confronting illness in a health pandemic, now more than ever, I cannot tell you how important it is to have that will that power of attorney, that healthcare proxy, those documents done, updated, without any reservation, and talk about it with your family. And then, of course, I would say that um, the the area of insurance is very important. There are a lot of people who are still uninsured in this country when it comes to their health insurance. We know that there are a lot of families they're underinsured for life insurance. So these are the 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 really the the building blocks of financial security. You notice that I've left the the last one, which I find to be the easiest, unfortunately, gets the most outsized focus, and that is investing. And if you have a retirement plan at work, sure, you can use that. But if you don't, open up a Roth IRA, open a traditional IRA, automate your finances, and try to pay everything digitally. You know, when we were getting those stimulus checks, I got so many emails from people. Where's my check? Where's my check? And you found that a lot of people who filed their taxes by paper took much longer to get their stimulus checks. So 
you know, go digital. And this is a time where you've got a lot of, uh, you know, you may have time on your hands, work with somebody, work with a family member, get online, get everything online, automate as much as possible. It will make your life easier. So let's leave on a bright spot. There are so few homes for sale that demand for new homes, even in this economy, has been skyrocketing. And building is now up because more and more companies and more and more people are feeling comfortable from working from home. That means that there's less pressure to go house hunting only in expensive major metropolitan areas. And mortgage rates are still ridiculously low. So there's a possible bright spot. Yeah. I mean, look, housing, again, this is an acceleration of a trend that was already in place in that the housing market was really cooking along already. As you say, mortgage rates are really low. So maybe for people who are actually under some anxiety around their mortgage payments, now's a great time to look at refinancing. Now's a great time to go to your mortgage lender if you're paying private mortgage insurance to see if your equity is enough to release you from that private mortgage insurance. If you're in the market to buy something, bring your patience, run your numbers, and don't reach beyond what you can afford. But if you are selling, don't be so quick to sell before you figure out where you're going next. And, um, you know, I, I'll i tell you, I'm, I'm an old-time trader. My first job on Wall Street, I was a trader on the floor of the Commodities Exchange. And uh, my my one inclination right now is that when everybody is reaching to do the exact same thing, that's when I really take a deep breath and say, is this the right thing for me? So if, if everyone you know is going out and buying right this second because they don't want to rent anymore, they want more space, uh, that may be a time you can run the numbers, but don't just jump in without figuring out whether this is right for you. Sage advice, as always, from Jill Schlesinger, business analyst for CBS News. Remind you about her podcast, Jill on Money, and her latest book is The Dumb Things Smart People do with their money. Jill, pleasure as always. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. This week saw the one and only vice presidential debate we will have before the election. Did it make a difference? Let's talk to Dan Schnur, who has worked in four presidential campaigns and was national director of communications for the 2000 presidential campaign of U.S. Senator John McCain. He's also founder of the USC LA Times poll, among so many other things. Dan, it's good to talk to you. How are you? Gil, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Before we get to the vice presidential debate, let's talk about the fact that we may have seen the last of the presidential debates. The next debate, according to the commission, is going to be virtual with Joe Biden and Donald Trump in two different locations. And the initial reaction from Donald Trump is that he would not waste his time with the virtual debate. Uh, good or bad for him at this point? It's, it's a tremendous risk for the president. Uh, as we knew going into the first debate, the three times that Biden and Trump were going to be face-to-face were perhaps Trump's only opportunity to change the overall dynamic of the race. His campaign had actually asked for additional debates not too long ago. The first one you know, clearly did not go to the liking of his advisors. Public opinion polls show that it did not serve him well. And so now Trump is raising the stakes a little bit. My guess is, is that if his standing in public opinion polls hasn't improved by next week, we'll see at least one more debate. But I think now that Trump knows that the debate format doesn't work for him as effectively against Biden as it does against Clinton, that he is a bit more reluctant 
On the other hand, he's running out of time and he's running out of opportunities. So my guess is even if we don't see both remaining scheduled presidential debates, we're going to see at least one. Okay. And for people who are fond of presidential debate trivia, this would not be the first time that such a debate took place with people in two different places. In the original series of such debates, Nixon-Kennedy debates, there was one in which one candidate was in Los Angeles and one candidate was in New York. So we've been here and done that, but it's been quite a while. There's no question that from a substantive standpoint, the two candidates can accomplish just as much from a virtual, virtual locations as being in the same studio. Uh, But one of the things that has always worked to Trump's benefit in the past, both in primary and general election debates, is, of course, not just the substance of his presentation, but the interrelationship and dynamic between him and the other candidate or candidates on the stage. That's something he needs. So it's not surprising he's pushing back. So vice presidential debates, as far as anybody can tell, rarely make any difference to a campaign. In 1988, even Republicans feared that Dan Quayle was thoroughly smacked down by Lloyd Benson's You're No Jack Kennedy rejoinders, but it made 100% no difference to the election. So did this one make any difference? Uh, I think both of your points are exactly right, Gil. First of all, this is almost certainly, this was almost certainly the most consequential vice presidential debate in American political history which means that, of course, it made no difference whatsoever in terms of the ultimate outcome of the uh, of the election come November. What was different about this debate, though, there was a, subte- a subtext that neither person wanted to go anywhere near, which is no matter which person wins, whether it's Trump or Biden, they'll be the oldest person to win a presidential election. And even many Democrats have doubts about Biden's stamina. And the president, of course, is working through the aftermath of a serious illness. So there is the specter of one of these people, statistically anyway, being more likely than normal to become president. And when asked about whether each of these vice presidential candidates had talked with the presidential candidates about getting ready for such a possibility. It was something that neither candidate wanted to go anywhere near. Well, to be fair to both Mike Pence and Kamala Harris, there's absolutely no good way to answer a question about whether a presidential candidate might be incapacitated at some point in the future. Two things I'll note from this is one, as you correctly stated, Gil, the fact that the president had been diagnosed with coronavirus and given Vice President Biden's age, the stakes are arguably much higher in this vice presidential debate than ever before, simply because the likelihood of one or the other of these two individuals becoming president is much greater. That said, it's still not clear that it had much of an impact on the campaign. I will offer you this, just one man's opinion. I think both Mike Pence and Kamala Harris far outperformed their bosses in last night's debate compared to the way that Trump and Biden presented themselves the week before. By 2024, this encounter is going to be a distant memory. Uh, But both of them, on balance, while neither were flawless, both of them were actually very good. If there was more at stake for one person, well, I guess it'd be different stakes for each person. Mike Pence, of course, has to now unlike four years ago, defend an actual record and a controversial record, especially in coronavirus in the case of President Trump. For Kamala Harris, the interesting thing that she's dealing with is she's still being introduced to the American people. And going back to my previous question, in a way, a lot of people, however many swing voters there might be, are looking at her and thinking, is this somebody if she were to become president, I'd be comfortable with. Well, the, the, they both had, both Pence and Harris had very high stakes in terms of their own political careers last night. Although Mike Pence's stakes were related to Donald Trump, 
Kamala Harris's stakes were related to Kamala Harris. And I don't mean that as a criticism of her at all, but uh, the imperative on Pence last night was to defend the president, who has been uh, taking some pretty hard hits in the media and in terms of public opinion over the last couple of weeks. The pressure was on him to present a more substantive defense of the Trump administration than the president was able to do last week. For Harris, the challenge was a little bit different. As he said, she's not a known quantity. And whether it's reassuring voters that she might be capable of becoming president, should the need arise, or laying the groundwork for a political future beyond this 2020 election, uh, this was Harris's first opportunity before national audience to show what she had. We can sit here all day and all night and say that everybody should be judged the same in these debates. But still, I noticed something different talking to voters after the debate. And that was, while men were, you know, fine, whether they're Democrats or Republicans, for the most part, with the way the debate went, a lot of the women, and I'll say this is not a scientific sampling, but a lot of the women I talked to were very ticked off about Pence's constant interruptions of Kamala Harris, saying it's very kind of reminiscent of the way they're treated like dealing with men in their daily life. And we're not talking about a matter of, you know, substance on issues, but a lot of women were very offended by pets. Well, it's 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 a very difficult challenge for candidates of, of, of both genders under these types of circumstances. In previous uh, vice presidential debates, both George H.W. Bush, all the way back in 1984, um, and Joe Biden, uh, debating Sarah Palin in 2008, both had a similar challenge. On one hand, they'd be forceful in presenting their own side of the argument without appearing to come across as disrespectful or patronizing uh, uh, to the female candidate. The challenge for a woman in the debate stage is even greater, though. There's a cons- considerable amount of research, Gil, that demonstrates that female candidates have a higher bar to cross when it comes to likability with the audience, uh, with a, a viewing or, or, or in-person audience. And in fact, one of the criticisms that you heard from Pence supporters last night after the debate is that Harris was not likable. The challenge for a female candidate, Democrat or Republican, um, is not to seem overly confrontational, but at the same time to stand up for herself and for the agenda on which she's debating. So extra challenges involved for both on the debate stage. I wouldn't be able to handicap which one handled better. Dan Schnur worked on the presidential, on four presidential campaigns and was national director of communications for the 2000 presidential campaign of U.S. Senator John McCain. Dan, as always, pleasure talking to you. Gil, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. You're listening to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. 
So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome back to America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. I'm Gil Gross. It seems that America has not been this politically divided since the Civil War. Many of us have no idea whether the political debates will change anyone's views. We live in a world, in fact, where we watch whatever cable news shows most reflect our already settled point of views, listen to whatever talk shows echo the opinions we already have, and unfriend people on social media, not because we really dislike them personally, but because we don't want to be confronted with opinions other than our own. People who otherwise may have been friends because they shared our hobbies, sports teams, business interests, or religious beliefs can no longer stand to be in the same room with one another, even if in these times it's a Zoom room and not really a room at all. Even in the same family, there are dinners that sound like they're taking place in a monastery, and maybe that's just as well, since the dinner table is filled with sharp objects and the temptation of a pie in the face may be too great for some people to stand. It isn't even that people argue about politics, they just stop talking to one another altogether, which makes this next story very special. CBS News correspondent Vlad Dutier tells us about two Tennessee men, one white, one black, of completely different political beliefs, who nevertheless became friends. Andre Block Sr. and Jonathan Williams, a small business owner and a film student, just finished a six-week bicycle journey across the United States to highlight a very important idea. The Unity Ride kind of came out of that concept of, you know, two people, different backgrounds, different skin color, different political leanings, just set a common goal, a lot could be accomplished. So, Jonathan, what do you talk about when you're on these long rides together? A little bit of everything. We do get into some very serious, heated conversations about a lot of things. We talk about America. Uh, we, we, we talk, talk about, about immigration. Right, we, yeah, we, we, talk we talk about, about politics in general. Right, yeah. uh, we, we talk about uh, Black Lives Matter. There are times when it's like, dude, I adamantly disagree with you. But there's a lot of times when we adamantly agree with one another. The two Knoxville, Tennessee men became fast friends after meeting at a New Year's Eve party in 2015. They've since embarked on a cross-country journey together not once, not twice, but three times. D.C., I think we talk about current issues. We rode in the ride. But 2020's ride carries even greater meaning for the duo. Have you found um, through your discussions that you've been able in some way to change each other's minds about one particular thing. As a white American, I, I don't necessarily understand some of the issues that black America has with police today. First trip that we did together in 2017, Andre was a little bit ahead of me on the bike and I came up behind him and there was a police cruiser right around the corner that had basically was stalking Andre and I didn't notice it, I didn't see it. And I'm scared. And, but that's the first one that really made me realize that, hey, this is a true legitimate reaction and, and a feeling that happens. It's one of the most profound moments of our relationship to see him have that understanding. <laughs> Poignant moments all along the way. Andre and Jonathan both carve out time for the Unity Ride, supported by a couple of friends driving an RV, all hoping to inspire others to share some common ground. Every time we get back together and get on the bikes, it is for the unity of, of our country. And it feels so good to be able to get this message out. This has been America Changed Forever from the CBS Audio Network. Produced by District Productive and Paul Woody Woodhull, I'm Gil Gross.
Get one of the most successful broadcasts in television history on your schedule with the 60 Minutes podcast. Hard-hitting investigative reports, news, and culture maker interviews, and in-depth profiles are waiting for you in every episode. Listen to 60 Minutes ad-free on Wondery Plus.